Steve should never have opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here, I was the cook. Jason should have been watched every minute. He was... Today is his birthday. Welcome to another episode of the Fear of God podcast, your favorite podcast, my favorite podcast. We are not almost in the middle. We're not quite in the middle of um, our current series, which is I Love the 80s. Um, as a child of the 80s, I do particularly have a fondness for that decade. Talking to you right now is Nathan Rouse. Typically with me um, is... Uh, fellow co-host Reed Lackey. Um, he also a child of the eighties and he, he did, he was here for a second, but uh, he was working on something specifically. He referenced needing to finish filling out, uh, uh, a, an application to be a camp counselor, which is, you know, I mean, that's kind of cool. Like I, I thought we were kind of past the age when a lot of people did that kind of camp counselor type of thing, you know, but it reads, reads a giving individual. He likes to devote his energy and time and talents to places that can make use of it. And so it doesn't surprise me too much that he would want to devote some time and energy to being a camp counselor. Um, so while he's finishing that up, everybody, um, welcome back. Um, I hope you're enjoying this fall season, this Halloween season we're in. Uh, we at the fear of God in the middle of I love the 80s. And I did want to encourage you, if you haven't yet, to be sure, go leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe. These are ways that um, really help us out. And, you know, they're just, they're just ways you can show affection for us in the way that we show affection for you by producing weekly high quality episodes, except when Nathan doesn't realize that his mic is not on for three straight recordings, but the conversations are just so good that there's no point in going back. So here we are. And <laughs> hopefully this one Help is me. all this. What, what was that? Um, Help me. Oh, oh my gosh, y'all. Uh, I don't, 
I don't really know. Help me. Um, well, I, I hate to leave you guys sitting here, but I'm, I want to go check on what that is. It's Help a, me. Oh my goodness. Hang on. Let me, yeah, well, y'all, y'all come with me real quick. We'll go check this out and see what's um, going on. Oh, 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 uh, hello. Is there, is there a little, a little child voice there? I heard a little child voice and. Get it, mommy. See what looks like kind of Get a little it, child mommy. body. Uh, what? Oh my god! Get it, mommy. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! The audience can't see the blood spurting everywhere. It's like bubbling out of this little tube in your neck. It's crazy. yeah, yeah. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. I hope the audience appreciates how much we go through visually for an audio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I just I hope they can really appreciate it because you know that took you about two and a half hours to apply and only I get to enjoy it but you know like I, I, I really it means a lot it's great it's like this next level podcasting yeah yeah I mean well you know I, I'm just it's it's my actor sort of background that just really comes into bear sure, like, I, sure. I've got if I don't feel it it's not really real you know like it's got to be real and that, so even you. if you can't you. see it I just want to make sure you know, it's it's legit for the people. For, for the people, it's too legit to quit. Yeah, Reed. Okay. So, welcome to the show. Um, thank you. We are thank at, you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you finished your application. Just whatever you do, don't be the cook. Um, it rarely goes well <laughs> for the cook. Um, that is true. We're at episode 107, uh, roughly the middle of um, this current series. I love the 80s. I know I love the 80s. I think you love the 80s. I am curious. Did, I do. Did you ever do the camp counselor thing? Yes, there was one season, uh, like kind of senior year of high school, that I was a camp counselor for a little Christian retreat, Christian week, and it was a quasi. I was, I, I wasn't like fully a camp counselor. I just helped out as, a, I don't know exactly what the term would be, like a like, like a, a deputy camp counselor. Were you that well guy? because. No, because I was also uh, the guy who did their music for the mm. weekly programs, like the uh, whenever they would come in and have their little chapel services and stuff like that. I would I was the musician that would play for their worship mm -hmm. leader, and that so right. um, so it's like because I had that, um, they also were like, oh yeah, and you can help with the you know sort of corral the kids and keep everybody organized and blah blah blah. Yeah, that was my. And you were playing was, like your the Sonic Flood hits and. Oh yes! Oh Lord, I lift your name on high. Yeah, they yeah, were, yeah. Like, that was a big one. Uh, I'm trying to think about what the what the other ones were. We were still very into Awesome God at that point. Sure, so that, sure. That we all up. should still uh, be into Awesome God. Like, yes, because that's a great song. Man, oh, I, I just song. meant God Himself. You know who is awesome. Oh. Yeah, yeah, but but you can you can have the song. <laughs> you can have the song. I did. Oh. I did. Um, uh, camp camp counselorship. Uh, as well, when I was in high school, we had to do volunteer work. And as part of our oh. um, sort of, uh, <laughs> I was about to make a joke or try to make a joke like, uh, you know, I was in like the delinquent school where you had to, you know, go volunteer your timers. It, it doesn't work. It's early right now. And like <laughs> the synapses aren't fully connected. And so like the germs of jokes start to appear. And then if I, oh if I follow them too closely, they just fall apart because they're not fully realized yet. <laughs> but um, so anyway, there is a camp near our house uh, or near our town called Camp Joy, which of course the joy Aww. stands for Jesus, others and you. Right. I mean, that's 
That's, wow. That's all there is to it. That's wow. Is to I've know, never really. heard that. I've never heard that anagram. I, I, I like it though. It's, yeah. It works. Yeah. It um, and I, d- I definitely did not lead the music cause I don't have that gifting, but I did, <laughs> I did. Um, I, I do recall rapping in some measure jokingly, of course, to love as a verb. Um, oh you know, yeah. yeah 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 everybody but, rapped to love but ironically ironically because oh i see yeah the yeah, other yeah. the other rap that every like early 90s kid knew was the other night i met a girl and she looked to be so nice i asked her for the digits and she didn't think twice a couple of days later called her up and asked her out she said with you i said with me and i said without a doubt i took her to the garden where i guess they'll grow the olives she wore a tighter skirt than any i could do in college <laughs> oh my goodness reed has been sitting on a closet skill that of Riri Lackey Face, Riri McLackey oh, yeah. Face, the the rapper at the Christian camp. Oh my camp. gosh, that's amazing. love is a verb. Yeah, boy, you yeah. must be crazy. Oh my goodness, I don't <laughs> care what you up. say, guys. I really don't care what you've heard because <laughs> the word love, love, love is a verb. verb. All right. right. So that has been, you know, speaking of I love the 80s and or early 90s. Speaking um, of love. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of verbs. Um, So let's (laughs) jump into this. So we are back. We're going to pivot, make a hard pivot away from all of that tomfoolery Um, and jump back in. Because, Reed, uh, while we while we lament slightly the putting aside of what you're watching, we are traipsing through the top 50 horror movies of the 1980s yes last week on an american werewolf in london we went through 52 now see i messed up what numbers are we what have we done already no you no, no, no. last week was evil dead the week before was american werewolf in london which was 50 to yes. 41 last week on evil dead we did 40 to uh, numbers don't matter today <laughs> we're on <laughs> this is a countdown numbers literally matter <laughs> this, this is a countdown no, so, 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 yes. Yeah, so, uh, on, on our very first episode, American Werewolf in London, we counted down fifty to forty-one. Last week, during Evil Dead, we counted down forty to thirty-one. So this week, that's it. Uh, that's we are going, going to count for. down thirty to twenty-one. These Reed are your is, listener Reed is my voted interpreter. <laughs> um, these are your listener voted thirty to twenty-one favorite horror films of. The 80s. Uh, Nathan, you want to you want to start us off? You want to start? I love to start us off. Let's do it. Um, So number 30, Riri, is everyone's favorite 1980s doll, that of Teddy Ruxpin. Um, (laughs) I didn't even know they made a movie until listeners voted on it. (laughs) Oh, he's a murderous little bear. (laughs) It's like the anti Paddington. Um, So, no, it is, in fact, uh, my buddy. No, it really isn't. It's, wow. it's not. It's it's actually it's actually kid sister. <laughs> isn't it crazy though? Like you just referenced my buddy. Isn't it crazy how much I think that this doll looks very much like my buddy? Like oh, I remember I when it, I saw him. Now I buddy. I don't have the history of the my buddy doll in front of me or the year of Child's Play's release. Spoiler alert: Child's Play is number thirty. Uh, but I would guarantee <laughs> they're meant to be echoes of each other or at least child's play is meant to be a you know a riff on that um sure it was a uh, child's so play was 88 so i'm sure yeah oh yeah yeah my buddy i mean if it was my buddy yeah. you know like 
<laughs> it's definitely before 1988. Um, so yes, number 30 is Child's Play, and we can't spend five minutes on every entry here, but it is directed by Tom Holland pre-Spider-Man days. Um, it did launch <laughs> the franchise. Tom Holland, everybody. Right. I think they, we've got savvy listeners, Reed. Come on. They can pick up. On it. <laughs> um, I know it's early, <laughs> but um, it did launch the franchise for Chucky. I don't love the idea of getting into this series at some point in our show's future, just because I just don't care. I really don't have any interest in this character. Have you, and I, I really don't want to spend a ton of time here, but just have you seen them? Have you seen mm, any of them? I mean, I, it, I don't think I've seen any of them beginning to end. I think maybe it okay. does secretly just scare the crap out of me. And so I don't really want to, oh, you know, okay. jump in that playpen. Right. Um, Fair, fair enough. Yeah, Fair yeah, enough. yeah. I enjoy them. Well, I good. I mean, you would. Um, yeah, you play with dolls. Wow, killer doll, okay. killer dolls. <laughs> next, read next number twenty nine. <laughs> okay, so number twenty nine is uh, a favorite of yours, a favorite of mine. It is directed by David Cronenberg, The Fly, featuring uh, Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and all the Flyman bar if you can possibly or possibly not stomach. Um, yeah. We did a whole episode on this. There, I mean, we have a lot of affection for it. Um, feel free to go and listen to that episode. For brevity's sake, we'll just leave it at, yes, number 29, David Cronenberg's The Fly. Awesome. Number 28 is The Return of the Living Dead, which is directed by Dan O'Bannon. He, a former creative partner of John Carpenter, whom we spent a lot of time with back in October of 16. Uh, he was, O'Bannon was more known for the films he'd written, like um, Total Recall, yes. um, Alien, Life Force, which is not to be confused with the NES game around the same time. Um, and <laughs> surprising myself, definitely, that this film has zero um, correlation to the Romero Living Dead series. Uh, right. Other than right. zombies, of course. Now, <laughs> I mean, what are the names of Romero's films? Night of the Living Dead? So, Dawn, what, what is it? Yeah, there's a, there's a whole slew of them. The core trilogy is Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. Um, but then he did go on in the series, and some of these titles, listeners, are going to make me give back my horror fan card. But some of them uh, don't quite come to mind. I know there was Diary of the Dead, Land of the Dead. Um, I feel like there's one other one that I'm missing. But uh, those are the, yeah. the um, So uh, only Night of the Living Dead has the phrase the the combination of words living dead in its title mm. um and so uh yeah it it is interesting so return of the living dead and it's been years since i've seen it but return of the living dead does feature zombies but it's played much more for laughs and it has no except for the zombie inclusion has no correlation or uh, relationship at all to George Romero's franchise, mm -hmm. but it is. Uh, I my memory of it is that it's it's a quite fun. Again, played for played more for laughs, um, but very very fun sort of zombie eighties thriller. Cool. As it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. What's number twenty seven? So number twenty seven is directed by Louis Teague. It is Cujo, also based on the uh, the novel by Stephen King, starring D. Wallace about uh, the poor beleaguered mother and son who get trapped in a broken down car uh, while they are being assaulted by a rabid Saint Bernard. If you are, uh, yeah, if you've never seen this film, this is I mean this is a pretty this is a pretty strong adaptation. Uh, that book is grim and grisly but uh but the adaptation is pretty strong that's, I, I do that's one of the uh few majors i think of kings that i've not read ah. at least 
by majors. I just mean often in conversation. And I've, I've definitely not seen the film. Maybe that'll be a, a future QK. Um, sure. Before we move on. Well, and to... Also, uh, it's referenced in Castle Rock. Cujo makes some. They, they, oh, they yes. do some nods yes. in the show Castle Rock to Cujo. Absolutely. Uh, when you do get around to the to the book, it's uh, it's interesting formatting. The entire book uh, has no chapter breaks, no chapter breaks, and no like little ellipsis dots or anything to separate. It's it's separated by like paragraph sections, but it's all just one big mm. continuous story. With well. and as a result, is relatively propulsive. As a result, speaking but, of uh, propul- yeah. speaking of propulsive, number twenty six on our list, the one, the only, John Carpenter's. They live. Oh, yeah. Does it get any better than <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper gun. and Keith David kicking each other in the testicles for five minutes straight? <laughs> <laughs> that's all. That's the, only, that's the only hits that they land on each other is they just kick each other in the nuts for like five minutes. And that's all. That's all. It's, that's what it was. Yeah. It's no wonder that movie has gained has has such a legacy attached to it. <laughs> no kidding um okay so again like with the fly we did a whole episode on they live go back and listen to episode uh number eight i believe it was and uh and yeah we'll we have lots to say about that um number 25 is a nightmare on elm street three dream warriors this was directed by chuck russell who also directed uh, the blob which was earlier in this countdown co-written by Frank Darabont, who would go on to direct the Shawshank Redemption. Um, but this is, in the Nightmare franchise, there is a serious conversation about whether or not the the fan favorite is the original or if it is part three, Dream Warriors. But uh, I do think Dream Warriors is an incredibly strong sequel. And when we dive at some point deeper into the nightmare franchise, I'm very curious to see how you would respond to it. But um, honestly, for pure enjoyment of watching a film, I think I might prefer dream warriors to the original, even though I think the original is probably a stronger film and definitely gets some street cred for being first. But dream warriors is a very, very good, fun, uh, scary exciting sequel i, I like now how many previous to n- uh, new nightmare new yeah. Ni- new yeah. nightmare is is a bit of a subset right i mean in other words like there's a run of them how many are in the initial run six so yeah not including six. new nightmare yes so there's six and new nightmare is technically the seventh film although it's it's formatting and its concept make it such that it's you know kind of not a direct sequel as it were right uh but yeah so and now um, is the nancy character in roughly all of the six no she is in uh she's in obviously in the first one she's in dream warriors and then she is not seen again until new nightmare and post new nightmare is it just freddy versus jason and the sort of panned remake that's exactly right yes okay. freddy versus jason which was robert england's uh final and as of this airing i have not seen it uh i did post it to the facebook group though i'm so excited robert england officially retired as freddy krueger but one of my very favorite tv shows the goldbergs which is all about the 80s if you're not watching the goldbergs please catch up with it but um they have lulled him back for a special halloween episode i don't know in what context but they did a they did a really fun pro 
promo on it where Robert England is back as Freddy Krueger, and I'm really excited for that. But yeah, other than New Nightmare, it's just Freddy versus Jason, which was the last time he played the role, and then, um, yes, the the pretty heavily derided uh, 2010 remake. Like, rightfully so? Or... Yes, I don't feel like it deserves all of the ire that's pointed towards it, but I, I, I recently rewatched it actually, and uh, like it was better than I remembered it being. But it's still, and the problem is Jackie Earl Haley right. donned the um, the Freddy Krueger makeup, and the problem I feel with that film is almost exclusively revolving around the in, the changes to interpretation that they did to Freddy Krueger. It felt like they were trying to do something deliberately distinct and different, and it didn't work as well um, for me, in my opinion. Um, but getting back to Dream Warriors, um, the, like Dream Warriors is where Freddy really gets campy, punny, um, very sarcastic. He's you know he's he's a version of that through the first two installments, but Dream Warriors he really digs whole hog into like as he's you know doing away with someone uh making some witty repartee of why they you know uh, of how he's going to get rid of them or taunting them and stuff like that that's where right. dream warriors really amped up at that camp factor um well thank you for that uh number 24 on our list that will end with 21 is creep show um, already referenced this episode. This is directed by George Romero in collaboration with Stephen King um, on five stories that make. So this is an anthology piece, um, but it does feature performances by just some really noteworthy folk. Um, Hal Holbrook, uh, Ted Danson, Leslie Nielsen uh, in a in, uh, against type here uh, in a dramatic role. Um, Adrian Barbeau uh, that we've known on the show from the fog and Stephen King himself as doomed Jordy Verrill. Uh, to, to, to Reed's dismay, Creepshow 2 didn't make this list. And I'm sorry, Reed, though that right. says this one is, this one is, according to my notes here, a certifiable classic. <laughs> oh, no, I know. I, I, it is. No, it really is. Yeah, I was a little, I was a little sad that, uh, Creepshow didn't, Creepshow 2 did not make it. Uh, it's, it's a lesser film to Creepshow, but I still like it quite a bit. Um, but no, if you, Creepshow is a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, it's, if you haven't ever checked it out or seen it, then I highly, highly recommend it. You should seek it out. This I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question, uh, while it's on my brain, lest I forget as I want to do, um, do it's, it's Halloween, it's October, it's Halloween season. I just posted recently to the Facebook group, the ringers article about best horror movies by year since 80, I think. Um, yeah, 78, 78. Okay. But still, um, yeah. One, uh, that's a pretty good list, by the way. But um, oh, it is, and it, it was kind of fun to go through it and be like, I've seen most of these now. Um, <laughs> do you? I know you're Mr. List, um, <laughs> and you at least strive for objectivity in the list you make. Are you able to be objective enough to look at like how does the '80s rest in terms of objective best of decades? And and let me caveat it once more by saying. It's been interesting for me observing my experience of the I love the 80s versus I love the 90s. I had a lot more affection for the 90s films. And I think it's just because I was and I didn't realize this until kind of getting into the series. Um, You know, that's kind of my formative teenage years when I'm starting to pay attention to movies. I'm starting to get into that genre type stuff. And so I've got 
even just associations around a lot of those films. And so, you know, it's not just the physical film itself as much as the, those associations and memories and, you know, things playing into it. Sure. So it's hard to be objective. Are, are you able to set aside some of that subjectivity in terms of your fandom and say, no, the eighties is really considered uh, a new plateau or it's considered the beginning of a great run. Like, like how do you place this? Sure. Um, as, as briefly as I can make it, no, the, the eighties is so, so the seventies, particularly the late seventies, um, but the seventies, we have more iconic films, films that have carried over through, uh, you know, several decades and are still regarded as some of the greatest horror films ever. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, uh, Rosemary's Baby, I believe was 70s. It might have been late 60s, but I'd need to look that up. But um, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, Halloween. Um, those are all films that, are, you know, are still being lauded as these sure. might be some of the greatest. But in terms of just a direct run of stylistic choices. Um, 80s is a fantastic decade for horror. There were there were a lot of films that the one big downside to the 80s is there was a huge boom, particularly in slashers. So the the overall impact may feel lessened by the sheer volume of horror films that came sure. out in the 80s. And, and there was it was just an, a, a glut of horror films. But in that glut, uh, you know, crunching the numbers or looking at numbers, you get a percentage of very high caliber, high quality 80s films, uh, horror films. And a lot of techniques uh, were developed and uh, stylistic choices were developed that still carry on now. And uh, and what I think objectively makes the 80s so great is there was a sense of fun to everything that was like it blended horror it it kind of pulled horror out of specifically sort of the the feeling of oppression that you might experience uh if you're watching a horror film and infused a level of fun that really i think hadn't been in the horror genre since like the 50s and 60s the universal monster films and the william castle films um and so that's why i think makes the the 80s objectively a great decade for horror and i really do think 80s is probably in my opinion but as objectively as i can be it, it is probably the greatest decade for horror just in sheer number of films and number of high quality films and i mean you know people's mileage will vary on each entry i'm sure and you can't totally lump Halloween in with this because Halloween began in the seventies, but you know, Halloween, I would presume saw much of its output or at least high volume of output in the eighties. Like you can't ignore. Yeah. Oh, almost all of it. You know, yeah. Freddy Krueger, you can't ignore Jason. These are, these are again, for, for however much a person may or may not love those characters, their impact on not just horror, the genre, but pop culture in general is pretty, pretty, sure. you know, pretty massive yeah most of our major horror icons came out of the 80s either had a first installment in the 80s or came to flourish in the 80s and with you know subsequent sequels and stuff like that so yeah no cool I, I well thank you agree. thank you for thank you for the diversion there um so next yeah, no next is your number 23 here 
Okay, so number 23, uh, another Stephen King adaptation, uh, also directed by The Fly's David Cronenberg. We have The Dead Zone. Uh, this stars Christopher Walken, Martin Sheen, Brooke Adams, Colleen Dewhurst, also a Van of Green Gables, yep. uh, but, pl- but playing a very uh, against-type role. Like, if your only exposure to Colleen Dewhurst was from Man of Green Gables, then she plays a very different uh, role in this film. Uh, and also Tom Skerritt. Uh, it's regarded by many, including myself, as one of the strongest of the 80s Stephen King adaptations. Um, and that sounds like a lot of qualifiers, but there were so, as you can see by the list, there were so many adaptations of Stephen King material in the 80s, and Dead Zone still ranks as, objectively speaking, one of the strongest, both in terms of interpreting the material to the film uh, while still staying true to the source material, because obviously The Shining is much beloved but diverts heavily from the source material. Dead Zone is pretty in line with King's novel and is still a fantastic adaptation. Have you ever seen The Dead Zone? Uh, no, you know what? I, I want to say I've seen The Dead Zone, maybe even with you, because I do have recollections of, you know, the Christopher Walken, Martin Sheen kind of dynamic and, and you know, the rough story, but I just can't remember when that might've been. It, it was probably with gotcha. you at some okay. point, but if it was, that would have been in our California days together, which would have been quite a number of years ago, though. I do, sure. I do as an asterisk really like that in the ways that many people in your life are probably like, I'm going to reference this horror thing and Reed's going to be happy that I did that. I love <laughs> that. One of my things that has cropped up in the history of our show is like, Anne of Green Gables, Nathan likes Anne of Green Gables. And so, Let you know, know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so any, exactly. Any, any yeah. actor that was in Anne of Green Gables, I'll make sure to say, Oh, and she was in this too. You know, she was but, in Anne of Green but Gables. not like the Mar- Marilla Cuthbert, you know, no, um, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, Next on our list, number 22. This is a much longer and involved list than I expected. Um, <laughs> but the 80s was a great year for horror. What can we say? Uh, yes. Number 22 is Little Shop of Horrors that taught us all to be a singing dentist. It is directed <laughs> by Frank Oz. Um, of course, he of the voice of multiple Muppets, not to mention Yoda, um, and also having a tertiary role in An American Werewolf in London. Um <laughs> Little Shop is a film version of the off-Broadway musical itself, an adaptation of the 1960 Roger Corman classic. Um, it features Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, features multiple appearances by just 80s noteworthy luminaries, comedy luminaries specifically, Steve Martin, Bill Murray, John Candy, Christopher Guest, Jim Belushi. Speaking of Bill Murray, he was in Charlotte two nights ago. I have oh. a friend who works at a restaurant that he showed up at and they sent me a picture together and it really oh was, my gosh yeah yeah that's the tippy top of the a-list it is it is yeah so that was number 22 read what is number 21 and the last on this week's rundown okay bringing it home is none other than clive barker's directorial debut and seminal cinematic work Hellraiser. It was, uh, again, directed by Clive Barker, adapted from his own novel, The Hellbound Heart. Uh, it launched the franchise that uh, came to be you know, known for the character of Pinhead, even though in this first installment, Pinhead is not in the film very much. Um, it's extreme. If you've ever seen Hellraiser, <laughs> you... I mean, what can you even say about Hellraiser? It's extremely bloody and graphic, uh, but it is stunningly original like like you would see this film and be like this is 
wildly inventive. Um, and it's considered by many to be one of the greatest uh, horror films of the 80s. Um, and clearly our listeners love it because just it didn't quite make the top 20, but it's it's right there. Number 21, Clive Barker's Hellraiser. I love that it exists in my consciousness now that there are certain words and characters and horror icons whom when Reed Lackey says their names out loud, what I hear is Reed Lackey's impersonation of Arnold Schwarzenegger saying those names out loud, <laughs> namely Pinhead and Rosemary's Baby. Um, if you have not heard our Predator episode from about five or six weeks ago, do go listen to that because oh, oh it's a lot of fun. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Yes, the pinhead. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I can't even. I can't even put the affectation on. Well, okay, so that was all right. That was your. That was your list, listeners. That was thirty through twenty-one of hashtag I love the eighties. We're getting into some great ones. Next week's is going to be even better. Um, but today we're not talking about any of those films. We are talking about one of the films that made it into your top ten. We will show. You, we will reveal the placement of the top ten in our ultimate episode of Hashtag I Love the 80s. But the film that we are talking about today for this episode is the seminal work in the franchise that gave us Jason Voorhees. It is Friday the 13th, the original directed by Sean S. Cunningham. Ta-da! <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your your experience of this film. We were in our, our Gardner Web days. Um, there was a, an evening at which there was a, this little theater that you that you could lower a screen and watch a movie if you wanted to. And we all uh, one Halloween night um, we did we the you know, theater sort of nerds. We, the theater nerds, did like a core trilogy. Uh, we watched, I forget in what order, except I think that Halloween was the final one of the three. But uh, we did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and Halloween. And I know that you participated in that, but I think for a lot of the time you were out uh, sort of manning tickets because it was a quasi-fundraiser that we were doing for the um, for the community theater or for our theater department. So what was your exposure to Friday the 13th? What's your what's your history? Had you only seen it once? What was your general um, impressions I mean, I, going I, into it? Other than that experience you just outlined, which I do have recollection of of what you said. Yes, manning a, a ticket booth, but also being pretty present for those films and, and finding. Listen, there's just something about the days where you can, and as an adult, as a adult who is a parent, as an adult who is a parent, in this case with three children, as an adult who is a parent with three children, a spouse, a dog, a job, where the discretionary time <laughs> to do all these things is just hard to find. But there's right. something about those experiences of like, I'll say youth, but you know, not, I don't mean like the Brett Kavanaugh type of youth, but just your, your youth time where that was meant to be a joke and wow. you didn't respond at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kind of like, what, where's it going? <laughs> I'm like, what are we getting? Reed, all I saw was this little like Looney Tunes esque puff of wind as you left the frame. <laughs> You're like, Oh, not touching that one. Um, <laughs> And see you guys. Right, right. <laughs> There's just like chirping on the other end of the mic. Um, so no, uh, those those experiences as a young person where you can just be like with your peers um, 
and I can't separate myself from that story now. Uh, but uh, just like in this in this case, watching a bunch of horror movies you've never seen before with your college theater buddies, like that is such an indelible sort of experience that those sorts of things yeah. are hard to create. So I do have, again, talking about associations, I've got associations with them in that regard. I don't think I'd seen any of those again since then. I did know just just memory served to know the the sort of punchline to friday the 13th that being who the actual killer is um so Ah. so that wasn't lost on me but i hadn't watched it since then i do think it's pretty amazing separating from the subjective here i do think it's pretty amazing that and talking about horror of the 80s impact on culture that there's such a cultural mythology that is developed around just friday the 13th as a concept you know, like, oh, right, right. It's right. like, oh, oh, it's Friday the 13th. Oh, God. You know, like, it's on <laughs> right, the calendar. Right, right. Don't know. Oh, it's scary. <laughs> it's scary times. You know, like, that's, that's just really fascinating to me how those sort of like sociological kind of culture. It's got, it, sure, sure, sure. It's, it's got this weird name. It's like, uh, Triskaidekaphobia. Tris, what? I, I don't even know how to say it. There's, a, there's an actual term for a fear of friday the 13th it's like of the day not the movie right of the no yeah 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 of the date wow (laughs) um but that's uh, wow yeah trisketa and if you look up this uh, if you look up this word it is terribly difficult to understand kind of how to pronounce it i think uh yeah trisky triskatophobia or something uh keep trying keep trying Triska, um, <laughs> how'd your how'd gonna, your episode go, guys? That was great. Reed had a five. Thirty minutes later, I'm like Triska phobia, phobia. Friday the Thirteenth phobia. Well, I I do think what's additionally fascinating to note, and and these weird karmic ways that certain pop cultural things lock into place or don't, like you know, who knows if. Doug Ray Scott had not chosen to be in Mission Impossible 2. We never would have gotten Hugh Jackman as an international movie star. Things like oh, that. Right. Well, the original title of this film was A Long Night at Camp Blood. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is ponderous and dumb. You know, and has no like, <laughs> and this like, uh, hey guys, you want to go see A Long Night at Camp Blood this weekend? What? Blah, blah, blah. You know, um, <laughs> how about so, a long night at Camp Blood Four? You know, like it just doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue. It's kind of a long it's title, like, guy. Um, <laughs> so I love how those little things happen, and now we have Friday the Thirteenth as a cultural, sociological concept, and and a major horror franchise. Sure. Um, for well, uh, do you, go ahead, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just gonna say, did you? Well, and it was specifically like the t- the ter- the title Friday the Thirteenth was at least inten- at least softly if not directly trying to carry on the success of Halloween by and I'm I'm not being facetious here this is going to sound like I'm like setting up a cute joke but they were literally like Halloween's a date on the calendar that everybody is superstitious about and scary like let's make another date on the calendar that's superstitious and scary uh, Friday the 13th and so hmm. the entire concept that sean cunningham came up with was basically like yeah what's what else is scary uh friday the 13th is scary like they did so many and victor miller the screenwriter they did so much of just like hey halloween was a major success we want to do a similar thing so how many different similarities can we make 
to Halloween and right down to like conceptualizing the title and creating the artwork for a script they did not have. That yeah. They then yeah. Put, uh, they put an ad in Variety and that's how they garnered a lot of funding for it was just with that one. Well, and that ad. was also the motivation there, too, was also because they wanted to um, basically attach that title to their project before anyone else could get that title. Like it sure, was, it right, was partly right, right. like a get out in front of it kind of thing real quick. If you, if for some reason you've never seen this movie, there is an element of twist to it that if you're just familiar with Friday the 13th as the Jason series, the, the movie is pretty strong, but uh, as a very, very quick synopsis, teenagers at a camp, uh, getting ready for to open camp season, start getting taken out one by one. What you learn at the end is the character, the killer who's been obscured and just sort of point of view shots the entire film is actually the mother of a camper who died years before at the camp due to counselors negligence and sexual dalliances and not paying attention. Um, and so she has come to sort of, you know, sow the whirlwind on them. So anyway, if you've never seen the movie and get a little confused because you think this is the Jason series, well, that's why she is Jason's mother. Um, Jason, the character only really gets established post this entry um, as right. a, as a presence in the film. But, but that is relevant to some of the talking points here. I did do a little digging on this and there's a lot of really fun uh, nuggets to this. So one, you probably know this, but like uh, Victor Miller, who you just referenced as a screenwriter, um, I saw him talking about Mrs. Voorhees as uh, sort of the motivations there. But he was unhappy about the decision to not just make Jason the killer in subsequent films, but even to have him at the end. Oh, right. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, and in fact, his his line that I found this morning was he was a victim, not a villain. And so he was not thrilled about that choice sure. which is which is pretty yeah. which makes a lot of sense like if you again if all you know culturally is jason is friday the 13th this movie will be a bit of a surprise because it's like you on its own it really is not what it becomes at all right and and well it's so weird because the poor film can't the the poor film's twist uh just can't stay secret to save its own life in contemporary times to this to the to its release siskel and ebert were so down on the film that they spoiled the ending in really? the review. I didn't see basically that. trying to get people to not bother to go see it. Um, well, and then, you know, many, several years later, uh, Scream spoils the ending of it. Like, you know, Wes Craven uh, and Sean Cunningham had a little bit of a history. They had worked together before, uh, uh, not joking, but they had worked together before actually in pornography. Um, but uh, as, as a director of that, those types of films, but um, they had had a bit of a history together, and so they have, a, as from what I understand, had a little bit of a friendly camaraderie or whatever. But yeah, Scream itself uh, spoils the first Friday the Thirteenth, so this movie can't well, twist or I can't mean, keep a the Siskel and Ebert thing. Secret. The Siskel, Siskel and Ebert thing is valid. A movie fifteen years after another's release, I, I, you know, I, I, th I think <laughs> right, it's a, yes. I think it's a, you know open season. It's kind of like me saying, "Hey, Bruce Willis is dead," um, you know, like we're, <laughs> right, yeah, we're that's, far, far enough along. But uh, sure. so Jason's appearance at the end of the film was actually suggested by the makeup designer Tom Savini, who I feel like I recognize his name, and you can probably fill me in on why. That oh, is. you do, um, you do. Well, and in fact, the reason they. Or one of the motives for that moment 
And again, if you're not going to watch the film, Jason is only alluded to throughout the film. At the end of the movie, the lead character, what we would refer to around here as the last girl or the final girl, um, ends up out on this placid lake, which is where the camp is, and gets uh, a, a, a sort of charred or, or decayed child's body leaps up out of the water behind her and pulls her down into the water. And that's roughly how the, the drama ends. Well, Savini says the reason for that choice was he had just seen Carrie. Yeah. Uh, And, and so in his words, we needed a chair jumper. And I said, let's, and (laughs) and he said, let's bring in Jason. Um, Absolutely. So, so Tom Savini, what's the, what's the reference there? Well, the reason he was hired is because he was just coming off of the runaway impressive success of having done the makeup effects for George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Okay. And and he is now a um a somewhat legendary figure in the makeup world, known for very elaborate makeup contraptions, uh, particularly involving deaths, gruesome deaths, as it were. And uh, yeah, so he was the makeup designer for this film. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's. Not much more to say about that. Tom Savini's brilliant. Well, and the the only other two kind of trivial bits I have here are around just the actress, Betsy Palmer, who plays Mrs. Voorhees. And these are great. Oh. So, like, <laughs> uh, this note I found, it says, um, she only agreed to play the role because she needed to buy a new car, even when she <laughs> even when she believed the film to be, in her words, a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I yes. love that story. Like, eh. I, I have been eyeing this new car I want, you know, sure, <laughs> whatever. <it. laughs> but she got paid $10,000 a day for 10 days. Um, <laughs> that was it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, I thought it, it's not worth diverting too much, but I actually think it was $1,000 a day for 10 days. But I could be wrong. Maybe it was 10000 I, I was like, $100,000 $100, when the entire film's budget was $500,000 seems high. I don't know. I'll check Wikipedia and we'll, we'll, uh, but uh, yeah, the, but what I do know is that regardless of that, uh, what I do know, and I don't have $500,000, but the film was made for an entirety of $550,000. So that was the, uh, that was kind of how they got funding for it. It was because they wanted to make, uh, you know, a somewhat smaller budget and, you know, film studios were like, Oh yeah, sure. I mean, $500,000 will do that. Well, uh, uh, with, and this is me just for both of our sakes on Wikipedia is their, their foot note is number 22 it says palmer was paid ten thousand dollars per day for 10 days on wow yeah wow Uh, that means the the whole rest of the film i know (laughs) like that wow that's crazy a fifth of the budget went to palmer's 13 minutes of yeah yeah (laughs) that's crazy well and the other great note here is the what is the name of the final girl the character name uh alice okay well the actor's name is adrian and betsy miss Voorhees previous to them shooting the final stuff, the final fight. So she comes from a theater world and she says to Adrian, why don't we rehearse this scene? Because I have to slap you. And on stage, when you slap somebody, you actually slap them. Right, 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 right. So she says while rehearsing, Palmer slapped Adrian in the face and Adrian began crying. And this is her. And her quote is she collapsed to the floor crying, Sean, Sean, she hit me. And I said, and this is, again, this is Betsy. Well, of course I hit her. We were rehearsing the scene. <laughs> Cunningham said, Cunningham said, no, 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 Betsy. We don't hit people in movies. We miss them. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. I just love Betsy Palmer's like, I'm just here for the car. Right, Where's right, right. my car? Like, I don't care about all of this right. stuff. In the theater, we teenagers. actually hit people. <laughs> you got to make we're that stuff tougher real. There. You got to sell it. 
Suddenly we turned Betsy Palmer into Betty Davis or something. We hit people in the theater. (laughs) She got her eyes. Um, (laughs) Um, That's all the bits I got. So I have ones. uh, I want to get into likes, dislikes, and scares because there there are a multitude of them. But one somewhat sad note, although I have no affection whatsoever for the creature. um, uh, It is notorious among animal lovers that the on-screen death of the snake is an actual on-screen death of a snake um that is these are you know this film was made like before the days of PETA and uh there is a there is an apocryphal story that says that while the snake was being killed its owner was off stage like crying but i don't know that i believe that yeah, story because story. It, it 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 feels like if the owner would allow his snake to be used right. that they would have had a conversation about what was going to happen so uh, but but what is not really in dispute is that was a real uh, a real death of a real snake and so uh, as a warning to people who have not seen the film and are sensitive to that kind of thing that is uh, in the film so um, I do have I do want to get into likes dislikes and uh, and some scares because man there are there are a plenty in this in this film um, one of the things you out just because it's already been mentioned, so we don't have to spend a ton of time. I love, love, love uh, Jason's final jump out of the lake. Um, it was actually in my scares, but I'll mention it here as a love. It's just it's one of my favorite jump scares in all of horror cinema. And as you mentioned, it was kind of trying to piggyback on the the final moment of Carrie, uh, which was itself kind of inspired by the final moments of Deliverance. But regardless, uh, yeah, I love the the final moment. Um, I love that we are only we only have like a hint of any ominous goings on in the Camp Crystal Lake is cursed with a blood curse thing. Um, And Cunningham had had I think he still goes back and forth on whether or not the sort of doom crier character, uh, the one who's like, I am a messenger from God. Like, it's Ralph. uh, Ralph. He's got a name. It's Ralph. Yes. Yes. Okay. so Ralph, Um, he. I think Cunningham still decries, does Ralph really work? Is that really the, you know, did he succeed in creating kind of a false suspect or whatever? But I just love that the conceit of what's really going on is not revealed until the last, like, 15 minutes of the film. Like, you're just, you just know, oh, there's a curse on Camp Crystal Lake, people are dying, and uh, and so it's not just the mystery of who is the killer, but why is the killer, and I really enjoy that. Um, I like that quite a bit. Uh, a couple more, uh, just just real quick, like dis- likes, dislikes. I love the overall tone and pacing. This is a film that sucks me in every single time I see it, and I've seen it multiple times. Um, but every single time I see it, I'm like, man, I just really, I, I get involved in it. It's got a great, a great pace, a great tone. I do love the musical theme. I tried to call out to it, uh, sort of in the very beginning, the. Uh, like uh i really like that and it was it's funny because the first like two-thirds of the movie there's almost no music and then in the end there's like wall-to-wall music and some of it very orchestral and pastoral and and yeah it's i i I enjoy the music in this film i have two more uh i well i love just the killer's ultimate reveal but i did have one thing that i was written uh writing down where i said like when annie i don't don't know if you remember her character but she's the one that was uh, yeah yeah and so when annie bites it i (laughs) love i love how when she turns around and sees the axe the look on her face is more of like 
Oh, really? <laughs> Not again. Like, instead of like abject terror, she just kind of like, ah, like, like she's Ralph was like right. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly the tone and then just gets an axe to the face um but my last one and i mean this very sincerely i i've seen the film a dozen times or more i get chills every single time i hear betsy palmer finally deliver the now iconic line his name was jason that i i just because of knowing where the franchise goes or whatever i just love it's late in the film and it's this this introduction, and I, I I love it. I just that similar. His name was Jason, and it's just it's great. I love it so much. Well, what likes dislikes do you? Have? Yeah, this actually isn't on my list, but you just saying that made me think of it. Um, I think one of the things that stood out to me about her performance, and this is why she got paid ten grand a day for ten days, um, <laughs> is I love that once she's revealed, they fully commit. I mean, they wanted to get their money's worth. They fully commit to her performance on screen and what i mean by that is there's no fakery with her sort of child voice affectation you know killer mommy killer oh like, yeah that oh, is yeah. all full full face shot you know on screen her doing it her committing to it it's a really effective right you know kind of kind of raises the freak out fat the creep out factor a little more than it might have otherwise Oh, no, I totally agree. And and like we've said before on this show, that is just an actor acting yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. She, she's um, and she's very effective in it. It's, it is extremely chilling. Well, and as you already know. Yeah, go ahead. All I was going to say is you talk about actors acting. So <laughs> this is like this is like inside baseball here, which is a, a sports joke. Read sports reference. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh i wasn't prepared for that yeah 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 i know um but but to go from sports to not sports um <laughs> her theater background so she studies the stanislavski method which is you know deep cut theater stuff um that what typically is commonly referred to as method acting so like even interviews with her on at least transcribed on the wikipedia page are talking about the deep backstory she created for mrs Voorhees, and so it makes oh yeah yeah so it makes total sense when you say this is an actor actor's like well yeah she she took this very seriously even though all she wanted was a car um she's slapping folks <laughs> she's slapping folks for real i heard she actually murdered one of the cast members um for real <laughs> and in, in real method yeah method. yeah yeah no we got to do it for real um <laughs> so in terms of some likes is likes for me i love it's a pretty great opening shot, the the or the the bleeding into the title shot, the girls the free, the freeze on the girls scream. Oh you know? yes, yes, um, yeah. Uh, I love Ralph, the prophet of doom. I, this would it's not neither a like or a dislike, and more just an observation. Like knowing where we are culturally right now, it's a little discomforting to have the truck driver observe of Annie girls up there look as good as you and then oh, you know and, yes, and there's got to yes. be there's got to be like 30 years difference in their age well then he gives her uh, a ride to camp and literally like five minutes of screen time later when she's committing to um go to camp and, and or be let off mm -hmm. by him he goes dumb kid head full of rocks and i was like oh this is <laughs> this dude this dude's the real bad guy here oh, you know <laughs> it's like yeah hey, he's a keeper hey teenage girl you look good you're dumb though um oh, oh my gosh. right 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 <laughs> sounds so lascivious yeah um, well yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the point reed welcome to the 80s 
Um, do you have any more? Do you have any more specific likes, dislikes before we move into scares? Uh, I very much do. Yeah. I'm, I'm oh, let's. Know. Yeah. Let me um, have them. I'm done with my list, so let I, me. Have I, I I totally didn't remember Kevin Bacon was in this, so that was a fun little. Uh, yeah. Fun fun little casting bit. I love the choice, uh, even though I just tried to defend her. I love the choice of killing Annie so soon. Like it's very. Oh sure. You know, yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, more or less, she's your beginning point of view character. Like you're you're. Oh, we're along with her. She's she's trekking to try to get to camp, um, mm-hmm. and and gets picked up by by Mrs. Voorhees. Yeah, um, yep. Little stuff. I, I I think it's just pretty ballsy for the bad guy to be an old lady. Like oh, what, yeah. what I oh, yeah. what I wrote down is just an inversion of the psycho dynamic. You know, in Psycho, you've mm-hmm. got mm-hmm. a child's putting on his mother's affectation and this you've got a mother putting on her child's affectation it's a pretty yes yes you know it's a pretty pretty fascinating sort of uh move and and it would have been cool to be around then to be like what you know like when it first yeah. happens yeah. in the in the theater um this is just sort of a, a, a nathanism kind of observation i love how like three times uh, mama goes down, you know, she's like the fire, <laughs> the fire poker to the back, you know, she gets sure. just oh, like yeah. hammered yeah, yeah, yeah. in the back with this fire poker. The next is the shotgun to the face. Um, and then mm-hmm. the, the frying pan to the dome. She is out cold three times, <laughs> you know, yeah. and oh, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and she doesn't even have any like wounds going into that last battle, that last fight. No. Scene. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> no. I'm good. She takes it like a champ. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's right. Well, and it's like, it's funny too, because like Alice, clearly this woman has been able to best multiple people, including a large number of men, but boy, Alice, like she didn't, she just doesn't know how to approach Alice. No. She's like, oh my God, no. she's actually fighting back. I don't know what to do. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's my likes, dislikes. So we can, we can jump into the scares of this bad boy. Let's, oh, let's do it because this has, oh man, this has some great ones. So, uh, we can back and forth this a little bit cause I'm afraid I'm going to dance all over some viewers. That's all right. Um, my favorite death scene, hands down, is Kevin Bacon's arrow through the throat. That's that rough. is yeah, that is rough. a crazy, crazy death scene. Took a, took a tremendous amount of effort to execute as well, because like Kevin Bacon had to be in this weird position underneath the bed sure. and stick his head up through. He was like on he was on his knees, but in this somewhat awkward tilted forward position while they built the latex around him. And then somebody else had to be under it to like shove the arrow through and operate right. the blood and everything. A terribly elaborate contraption. But man, it is very, very effective. I mean, hashtag worth it because it is a great, <laughs> great shot. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's my that's my favorite death. Uh, well, and down. what's you know to the the peripheral sort of narrative scares around that scene are are multifaceted because and and where this takes place in the movie, if you haven't seen it, Kevin Bacon and his girlfriend have sex in their bunk bed, the the bottom bunk of their bunk bed. Well, once. Once they're done, um, what <laughs> you learn is that the entire time they're down there. Oh, my God. Not only is there a dead, bloodied body in the top bunk, literally above them. But as Reed just described, what that also means is during the entirety of their time together under the bed is Mama Voorhees 
Just... Yep, the killer. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yes, it's it's pretty gruesome. But uh, let me see. Another next one that I have is uh, I, I the last forty minutes. I it's I put it's tense in the best way possible. It's like if you're reading this as a novel, it's like it was a dark and stormy night. I love how it's just you know the storm sets in, right. everything's rainy, everything gets dark, and and I, I don't often pay attention to time signatures in films, but I've seen this multiple times, and so I happen to glance down. There's forty forty to forty five minutes left in the movie when that sort of final run of the last night of camp begins, and uh, it's it's fantastic, and the way that all of the kills sort of build. Um, Alice stumbling through the bodies and discovering even before she runs into Mrs. Voorhees is just uh, it's it's fantastic escalation of tension. And I, I, I love it. I love the final, you know, sort of third act of this film um, leading into a couple of deaths is the scene. And what I wrote down is. I guess smoking pot and Monopoly were how some people spent the 80s. Um, you know. <laughs> Strip Monopoly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lest we forget. Yes. Um, the the first, you invoked it at the top of the episode, the first invocation of the, the help me. Uh, oh, yes, is, yes, is yes, yes. Pretty darn creepy and effective. Oh, absolutely it is. And absolutely is that, is. And- I think that's the character... And that's I called her Monopoly Girl. Just I couldn't keep up with who everybody's name was. But um, I think is she the one? I wrote down a line, and I'm wondering if this is it. She says, or a character says, "Oh hi, what are you doing out in this mess?" Oh yeah, um, it is a character. I forget who it was, but it was the guy um, in the yellow raincoat. He's uh, I think he's he's either one of the administrators or maybe one of maybe a member of law enforcement or something like that i can't i can't quite remember but yeah he's he's not one of the the teens he, he all i remember from the moment and i apologize listeners that i don't have better context for this but he's wearing this yellow raincoat and then approaches it's in that final sort of run sure, where just yeah. bodies are just lining up right. uh, but yeah i love like he just like hey what are you doing out in this mess gets closer and then there's like a music cue and he a shocked look on his face and then cut and that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so great. I couldn't remember the context, but the line was effective. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like you already referenced this, but I even knew it was coming, much like Carrie. But that final boat shot will, as Tom Savini suggests, is indeed a chair jumper. Um, oh, it is. Uh, again, an atheism here. I love. I think it's Steve is the head of the camp. You know, the guy who like is at the beginning and seems to be flirting with. Alice, is that what you said her name is? Yes. Um, yeah, it yeah, seems yeah. to be flirting with her or they have some kind of history or something. And then he's like basically gone from the camp the entire film uh, to go sure. drink in the local watering <laughs> hole. Um, but then he comes he comes back and gets killed. Well, so then when Alice is being pursued by Mrs. Voorhees, she is running towards frame and literally Steve's body falls into frame from above so he's like hanging yeah. on he's hanging on a thing upside down and presumably is it a tree branch is it uh, who knows but i just love it's like let's not think too hard about this like how <laughs> mrs Voorhees and or more so why she took the time sure, sure. to and had the physical strength in the middle of the night to <laughs> yes yes <laughs> to, exactly to perch him up in a tree mm-hmm. you know I, I, <laughs> no, I, I love the 80s. What are you going to say? 
Well, and that's the th- that's the funny thing in all in all these slasher films, and Halloween does a similar thing. But at least with Halloween, Michael Myers, you knew he was sort of unhinged and is fascinated by bodies, as it were. But yes, plenty of slashers have the final character, mostly the final girl, sure. like running through a a labyrinth of. Uh, you know, setups right, that, right. that almost are like Jack Jack's in the box where he's just like, oh, you open the door. Oh, there's another one. Oh, my God, I turned around and there's that one. It's like all of these like little set traps that the person was like, oh, wait, let me push the body up so that right, when they open right, the door, right, right. it's going to fall down. Yeah. And it, yeah, don't think too hard about that because otherwise it makes I no think, logical Reed, sense. they call that in, in horror circles, they call it the gauntlet of gore. Oh, I'm if they. Kidding. I just made that up right now. But you know what? <laughs> We're going to call it that yeah! because yeah. we're awesome and it's great. Yeah. It's great. Speaking of, you mentioned, you know, great lines. You know, what are you doing out in this mess? Um, I, I, sincerely, the it's chilling and I love it. The the final, you know, sort of push in on Alice's face when she says, then he's still there and then transmits to the lake, you know, yeah, and just this yeah. push in on the lake. I love, love, love that final moment as as this there was i kept thinking and i've seen the movie multiple times but i kept thinking i was like this is an impressive choice they had the big chair jumper of jason coming out of the lake which is definitely alarming and completely unexpected but then you almost are braced and ready for another one when they're pushing deep in on the lake you know she says then he's still there and they're pushing deep in on the lake and i love 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 that they just that they don't they just linger on this sort of mystical awareness that maybe then he's still out there. And I, you, I think that's a fantastic final line. Uh, feel free to cut this if it goes nowhere. But for those of us who haven't seen it, do you have have you seen recently enough and or do you have recollection of how the character Jason actually enters the the narrative in the second in the second? So film? I haven't seen it recently enough, but but two things that that I recall is um, I can't remember in what context but I remember that in the opening of Friday the 13th Part 2, spoilers for Friday the 13th Part 2, um, Alice is back and there is a clearly adult Jason wearing a bag over his head because he had not yet discovered. He doesn't get his iconic hockey mask until Part 3. Um, but really? wearing a bag wow. over his... Yeah, yeah. And uh, wearing a bag over his head at this point, like a burlap sack. Um, but he has made a little like shrine to his mother uh, composed of like body parts and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. Alice uh, stumbles into it and is killed, is taken out in the very early portions of it. And then that sort of just launched uh, Jason being the primary villain through almost all of the sequels. There is, there is one sequel where it's Jason and then surprise turns out at the end that it's somebody pretending to be Jason, which I still don't know quite why they did that. But um, which one yeah, is that? Jason is that's part five, a new beginning. And uh, it's somebody at the end of that pretending to be Jason. Jason's not actually in it, um, which is why part six is called Jason lives because he's back, everybody. But uh, but yeah, so that's that's as much as I can recall uh, about the about the opening of Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Do you have um, sort of like you described with Dream Warriors uh, earlier in the episode? Um, is there another entry objectively, and or do you have a particular favorite of the series beyond the first one? Jason lives. Oh, really? Yeah, Jason lives. Jason lives is my favorite to revisit because it's just it's a lot of fun it's very campy um it's got some pretty cheesy acting and a pretty cheesy script but it's very yeah it's very fun it's good hack and slash fun 
so yeah, Jason Lives is my is my favorite of the Friday the Thirteenth sequels. Cool. Um, well, that's that's my scares, brother. All right. Well, um, you want to uh, for what time we have? You want to pivot into into some thematic stuff? Yes. Let's do that. Um, what did I have a small little notion of an idea? But what did what did you have? Um, I mean. I feel like I've referenced this before and I should actually go and reread the context here. There's a a note in Great Divorce about uh, a parent at the sort of entryway of the afterlife, as it's described there, who's unable to get further because of their unhealthy attachment to their child. And so uh, movies like this or stories like this, characters like Mrs. Voorhees conjure that to me. And it's interesting, a, a, a film will discuss later and i love the 80s so i won't give too much reference to it here uh is sort of the opposite or the more healthy version of this um but what i wrote down specifically just says parental love gone bad and Mm. i think it's fascinating as a person of faith who is a parent and and sort of with every passing week if i'm paying close enough attention maybe it's every day but definitely with every passing week and or month you're understanding and comprehension of your role as a parent just continues to evolve. Mm. And, and I think it's just fascinating to have a conversation about the healthiness or unhealthiness of, of what parenting can and should look like as a person of faith. And I'm going to juxtapose a little bit yeah. to think about like um, I'll, one I can reference here because it illustrates what I'm the opposite side of what I'm talking about more fully is a, a quiet place. You know, I think mm -hmm. I think we all would look at A Quiet Place, the film and the story there and find absolute solidarity with those characters and their struggle and their plight and their efforts to Mm. uh, not just endure a, a, a wrenching scenario, but to endure together to, uh, as the, the movie says, protect so, so you look at someone like Mrs. Voorhees and on the one hand, this, this is sort of ignoring the, the extreme act she goes through, but I'm referring specifically just to the emotional attachment present, you know, on the one hand, you're, you're at least empathetic, you know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, no, I mean, this, you, you were wronged and, and dreadfully so. Mm-hmm. And so trying to examine under the microscope a little bit, like, where does the line ignoring the extreme nature of her behavior post that event. But where does the line begin and end between healthy protection, healthy attachment and unhealthy attachment to your children? Right. You know what I mean? I I know that's, it's kind of a big, a big concept to kind of wrangle here, but like that's something that kept coming back to me of, because I think it's fascinating that a horror movie uses it completely upends the serial killer trope, you know, like you are conditioned to believe that all of these point of view shots in this film are of a male, of, right. of, of a man. Yes. And so mm-hmm. then when it's revealed to absolutely not be the case and much more when it's revealed what this character's actual motivation is, that's a very bold choice. Sure. That sure. you don't entirely Again, setting aside the extremes that you don't entirely disagree with, you know, like you're like, yeah, yeah, I know why you're like this. I don't absolutely don't condone what you're doing, but I know why you're like this. Sure. And it's like it Friday the 13th is unique among some of its peers in that 
the Jason takes on and she, Mrs. Voorhees in the first film, is this. Jason becomes this as the franchise proceeds, but kind of becomes this spirit of unqualified vengeance. It's just it is it is unleashed. And so vengeance is unleashed on the people who have done something wrong, even if they themselves have not specifically done anything wrong. Right. Just right, right. their type, their people. Um, and I think that's somewhat unique in that. You know, you get your we're not talking about these other franchises right now, but you get your Michael Myers, which is just sort of a force of evil, a, a figure of evil with very little shape, explanation or motivation, a shape. Yes, exactly. Um, and then you get Freddy Krueger, who was, you know, a sadistic person in life and then is just given additional power uh, in after death. But yeah, with with Jason, it's very much like, no, they they did something wrong and they they wounded uh, irrevocably, this poor person, and so now what they have unwittingly done is unleashed a spirit of uh, just relentless vengeance. And and you know you've seen Freddy vs. Jason. It's you know that's one of the staples that they make there is that uh, they say in that film, and it kind of becomes true in the franchise. It's just Jason can never die. You know this this spirit of vengeance then can never die. Now, I, I, admittedly, in this first film, one of the things that stood out to me, I'm gonna I'm gonna launch pad off of your sure. conversation about the uh, about you know parental sort of appropriation and, and thinking rightly about how to respond to these type of things and thinking about the the notion that it stuck out to me was holding an entire group of people an entire type of people responsible for things that a very specific subset of those people have have done to you sure um in in the same way that somebody would be like I don't trust church people because I was hurt by this person in the church or in the same way that somebody would be like, you know, uh, uh, victims of abuse. Sure. It is understandable that it's like, okay, well, this individual abused me. So now I have an association with everybody that reminds me of this individual. And and so that stood out to me, this, you know, sort of this active seeking vengeance to where she loses, Mrs. Voorhees loses her grip on reality and begins calling Alice out specifically for abandoning Jason. Right. When Alice had, you know, Alice had nothing to do with that. That was, you know, several years ago. And so she's obviously got a schism in her mind of, it is interesting to me how we can, if we don't deal properly with the, the, wrongs that have been done to us and if we don't handle them in a healthy manner we can very easily begin to hold entire groups of people who are who are not directly responsible for it accountable for the things that have been done to us and i'm not making a a broad comment on whether or not that is good or appropriate or whether there should be some sort of recompense but I am saying it can be unhealthy and it can grow into this spirit of, as it does in the Friday the 13th franchise, a spirit of almost relentless vengeance. I'm, I'm going to just sort of hit and run with a passage of scripture because it wasn't some you know deep bumper sticker. It was just something that made me uh, think about when I was thinking about the character of Mrs. Voorhees, thinking specifically of Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 17. It says, um, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. And verse 18 is interesting. It says, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. Now, this is this is a, a proverb, but I think the 
observation is interesting because basically what this is saying is, hey, um, if you begin to gloat and revel in the demise of your enemies, in this particular passage of scripture, there's an implication that it's like, hey, dance too much on the failures of your enemies mm. and the Lord will show compassion to them because you're, you right, know, like right. that, that sort of thing. Um, and I do find not getting into all of the theological implications behind a statement like that. I do think there is a toxicity when we rejoice in the downfall, even of our enemies, rather than grieve what has what has happened, rather than sure. bemoan and lament that such a thing exists in the world. When we relish and cherish, like yeah, we got them. You know, that's I mean, Mrs. Voorhees is just she feels in her psyche compelled by the spirit of her son, as it were, to go and kill them, mommy, like take, you know, take revenge for me. And obviously all she's doing is destroying more and more lives. And I feel like we ourselves have a tendency to look at this is this is a thing that bothers me. And I know we don't have a ton of time left, so I'm going to be as concise as I possibly can. It's a thing that bothers me when individuals in socio-political issues will for their side say no we need to understand and show sympathy and show compassion when a very similar thing happens to the opposing side we will you know like cheer we will raise up yeah they're getting what's coming to them that you know bring it down and i'm always sort of I'm not bothered by justice in any capacity. I'm not bothered by people being found out for, you know, atrocities that they've committed and being held accountable to them. That should bring all of our hearts a sense of peace that justice has been enacted. But I am aggrieved of the people who would relish that for their enemies while begging for compassion when it happens to someone in their own camp. And I think that's something we would do well to be mindful of in and of ourselves. How much do we rejoice in the downfall of our enemies, but cry for mercy and compassion when a similar downfall happens to to sort of our camp or our side, as it were? I know that's a, a bit of a diversion from the from the parental thing that we were talking about, but does that does that make sense at least? Totally. And I think, you know, as Mrs. Voorhees does in this film to her own mental instability, we would do wise or be wise or do well to be mindful of just how much we monolith certain people groups. Right. Um, right. And that is an increasingly challenging proposition in these present days, you know, because it's just so easy. It's like, Oh, well all of you are going to be like this and are like this. And thus I can just sort of either dismiss or bucket you that way and not, right. have, to, not right. have to contend with the actual, ramifications of the scenario at play and you know i think for me personally this may seem slightly unrelated but they feel tethered uh psychologically at least these conversations you and i have i want as best i can to find some sort of anchored tether for application but i think something i've started to, to try to be mindful of and it's early going and it will be difficult, especially if someone knows me and my temperament well, is things like social media postings, which are just, it's a, just a weird world we live in when that's like yeah. a representation of thought and expression of 
ideology, um, but it is, um, is to sort of, I've already tried to do this occasionally, even though sometimes I'll lapse is to just think twice before I post a thing, which doesn't mean don't post a thing. It just means you'll have the impulse, right? Ignore the impulse for the moment and then maybe come back to it. Um, anyway, well, almost a second level or layer to that. And again, if someone's friends with me on Facebook and you're like, you're not doing that. Like this is pretty, a new sort of feeling and revelation or idea, but, (laughs) um, is to do my best where possible to set aside cynicism. Yeah. Um, there's a situation very specifically that is present in the news. And I don't mean big things like the Supreme court stuff, but a quote by a, a, a quote our president said, and it'd be easy for me to just like cynically be like, what are so stupid, blah, blah, blah. And, and in applying this cynicism test, it's like, okay, while I do emotionally think, this is stupid or this is unfounded or this is a ridiculous statement. Just, just taking it a step further and saying, okay, if you're going to post in response to this, and this may seem far afield of where we're at with Mrs. Voorhees, but it feels tethered. If you're going to talk about these things, we're going to comment on these things. Why are they troublesome? Okay. Well, they're troublesome because the implications of this affect many people, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And the yeah. temptation is to let this quote represent many people and, and just trying to apply this test of my own spirit and how I respond and react. Cause dude, it's so easy to put on that hard shell and, yeah. and presume like Mrs. Voorhees. Well, in her case, all promiscuous teenagers at a camp. Right. Right. Are complicit in my son's death. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. that's patently ridiculous and uh, empirically impossible. Right. But it is an understandable sort of way of viewing a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, using your example, well, someone in the church hurt me. Thus, everyone involved in church is hurtful. Well, right. Right. No. <laughs> you know, you, you, <laughs> right, you, you right. will have to work out your own sort of individual relationship to the people who are in church and, and what that sure. means, what that means for you. But to live whole and live healthy and live faithful is to reject those sort of sweeping judgments just because of an isolated demographic. Anyway, I think, I right. think that's sort of what you were saying or some version. Oh, of no, it. Yeah, yeah, it's and and it that is a very large subject for, you know, what what is a concise conversation, but yes, that's that is the tone of it. Is is you you cannot then, you know, say because this very specific thing happened to me, then this much broader implication is therefore proven by this specific thing that happened to me. That's that is not entirely a, a, a healthy way well it's not a healthy way at all but that's not uh entirely true and is not a healthy or helpful way to try to navigate your own grief and suffering um and i do think that it but it is we, inter- we have a tendency can i jump in yeah but go ahead. it is interesting yeah, yeah. and i know you're you're trying to land the plane and i'm just like no no no, pull out of the nosedive um um mm-hmm. it is interesting something i've thought about lately and and you know strands of different things i'm absorbing or are, are feeding into this but 
I've referenced before about the Bible for Normal People. It's a podcast. Uh, P. Dens, Jared Bias, these two guys who just kind of bring sort of biblical scholarship down to a very lay level, which is it's it's really fascinating. Sometimes it's actually kind of boring, but it's all pretty fascinating. Sometimes it's really inspiring. <laughs> um, <laughs> I say that as an episode I just listened to was like, who is Yahweh? And they have this like Old Testament scholar on and like. I'm trying. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to plug in and be like, "No, this is interesting stuff." Oh, oh God, it's so boring. Right, 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 right. But, but what what has sort of been bubbling in me, and and I think Mrs. Voorhees is the sort of tip of the spear on this notion is like our psychological tendency, our our, our sort of human nature tendency to want things to make sense. And to yeah, and and if we can pattern a thing, if we can, as a word I used a minute ago and borrowed from you, perhaps if we can bucket a thing, if we can say, well, these people are like this, those people are like this, this is how right. the Bible is as it is for all ways and all people and all things. Uh, this is how God is and how He is for all people and all ways and all things. Then I can make sense of my world. Yeah, right. it's kind of like how sometimes the church will release things like social justice statements, which are absurd and ridiculous, but I am at least (laughs) like how I'm just sort of glancing off that. Um, I know. Yeah. I'm at least empathetic to the, to the confusion at its core, which is we really want order. Yeah. 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 And we really want things to just make sense. And mm-hmm. we really want, because if things can make sense and if things are ordered, I can ignore or pretend nuance and complexity and human dynamics and individuality don't exist. <laughs> sure. You right, know what right, I mean? Right, and, right. and, and like Mrs. Vo- Mrs. Voorhees has created this monstrous pathology, which is to suggest all these people are like this. Thus, all these people in her view need to be exterminated. Sure. Yeah, Exactly. Ignoring, ignoring that not just are not all these people like this, but now you are now you are become your own problem and monster, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly right. That that now you are the the horror in this situation. And um, and that is that is a thing that I believe the Lord wants. Well, of course, he wants it, but we just don't realize. And maybe this is maybe this is a button to end on. uh, I don't know. But. Maybe we just don't realize how in trying to sort of address the monsters, we can become monsters ourselves. And in some in in sort of trying to respond to the problems can become the problem or can become a problem. And yeah, and I think that's uh, that is a that is a worthy and weighty consideration that good old good old Mrs. Voorhees taught me um <laughs> did you have anything but, do, but did don't you, have you think more to- I, I promise this was not intentional i'm really not trying to keep you away from the landing from the landing no screen. no you're you're fine you're fine but and and maybe this is me being too sweeping i think it's when we are trying to force a thing to make sense you know i this mm. is so random mm. but i had a person who we have so very little like person to person interaction i and this person and in fact <laughs> I doubt they'll ever listen to this, but I'm I'm about to be 39 in a week. Happy birthday, Reed! Happy birthday, late birthday! Oh you yeah, thank birthday. you. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the time this airs, I will have I will now be 39. This this person I think is probably in their early 50s. It's a lesbian woman, and we're friends and we're peers, 
And she recently reached out to me via email. Hey, these really difficult travails are happening in my life. Mm. I see the things, the way you talk and the way you respond. Can you help me sort of sort this? And read my impulse to her was to tell her it won't make sense. Don't yeah, force yeah. it to. Right. And right, and I right. think we're so and and who knows? May, and and this may be me be too, do, being too sweeping here. Do, has the church acculturated us to this expectation? Has just general sort of human history acculturated us to this expectation? This impulse and desire for the thing to just make sense. Sure. You know, sure. and and it just and I think for me personally, there are just ways that tragedies especially you know and 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 if mrs Voorhees' mm. motivation source point is anything it's a tragedy they aren't going to make sense and you either learn to live in that tension and and move forward whole or actively reject that tension and in seeking to try to make sense become a pathological monster <laughs> you know like, yeah no i i I do agree with you, and I would I would say as an Im- impulsive response that I think that is a condition of human psychology. I think it's I think it's something that all you know. I, I definitely think the church does it, um, but I also think politics does it, sure, and I think sure. uh, that that it is science does it. Um, there are some elements, some areas of life that have baked in sort of challenges and accountability, but. That is something I that is something that I think is common to humanity that we demand it makes sense. And yes, you're right. Sometimes it's simply not going to. It's not going to make sense neatly or cleanly. And if we don't become comfortable with living in the tension and moving forward in the tension, uh, then we yeah, we will create, possibly even become monsters. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I will finally Friday let the 13th, you yeah. land the plane. Hey. <laughs> hey, oh, wait, no, wait, wait! No, there's this other thing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, but uh, as we do every episode, we um, we're gonna bring in our good friend, old David S. Pumpkins, to uh, measure the first installment of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise in the area of style, scares, and substance. Um, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll lead the way on style. Uh, this film is fantastic. Um, I think that there's some dings that could be had, uh, just sort of in the minutia of things, certainly in certain performances. Um, but as a slasher, as an early slasher that still remains haunting and effective, uh, this is very, very solid. I'm going to give it four and a half. Wow. 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 Yeah. Um, I, I don't have as strong... And it's unfortunate because I think I think 30 years has indoctrinated us to the horror camp. Sure, sure. Concept. And so, you know, what might have been fresh and inventive at one point doesn't feel quite so as far as that component is concerned. I'm going to I'm going to land at a three. Um, That does not feel like a slight. It does in relation to your four and a half. It doesn't feel like a slight for me. I like it. It is not one of my favorites of the especially of the majors. Gotcha. Well, what would you uh, um, say for scares? For, for scares, um, I'm going to go on scares. I'll I'll go a three and a half on scares. There are some legitimate jump moments, and this may th- these may seem 
uh, uh, lightweight ratings. It's going to make sense in a second, but um, I'm going to go three and a half on scares. There's some lightweight jump moments. I don't know that I've got, there's a ton of dread inherent there, but, but there's some significant jump moments and just generally uh, the, the premise itself is, is has some built in scare factor to it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to see your three and a half, just raise you half a point. I'm going to go four on scares. I think the, the kills are pretty effective and inventive. And yeah, there's some g- great uh, jump moments. Plus, I think the last 30 minutes is just nerve wracking and tense and, and great escalating tension. So yeah, it's a four for me for scares. Now, Substance, I feel like this film is uh, of its hour and 35 minute runtime. I feel like it is about an hour and 20 minutes of just hack and slash filmmaking. And then I think there is quite a bit of substance that just comes in in that last 15 minutes. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to land at a three and a half on the substance meter. Um, awesome. I and this is what I referenced. I'm going to land at a four because I think. All right. What feels like a pretty pedestrian, you know, sort of serial killer or, or, you know, kind of slasher story for the bulk of it in a way that we probably have only begun to scratch the surface of takes a hard pivot into something more deeply substantial in those last 20 minutes, just by the nature of who the, who the killer is, what their motives are, how that subverts much of what we expected, not just in this particular film, but of the genre itself. I think there's a lot that could be unpacked there and I'm going to steer the plane back up into the clouds right now. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, 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 Reed. I've got some more. I've got some more. No, I'm just kidding, but I will. (laughs) We'll have other episodes. I know. I know. I will end at a four for seven. All right. And that puts us at a 7.5 David S. Pumpkins measurement for Friday the 13th, the very first installment. Does that, does that disappoint um, you or is that uh, pretty? No, no, no. Uh, I was uh, I was kind of thinking we might go eight, but no, seven and a half, uh, seven and a half feels, feels good. Um, I don't feel like that's really a slight. Um, when the listeners discover in our ultimate episode where this lands in the top 10 uh yeah seven and a half feels about right uh that's just a teaser for you know exactly how these films all placed in the ultimate top 10 but this is one of your 10 favorite horror films of the 1980s uh it's definitely one of my favorite horror films of the 1980s uh and nathan thank you so much for uh coming on this journey with us we are continuing next week with your listener voted hashtag i love the 80s films and yes killer lackey killer lackey (laughs) yeah i'll let you talk now Ah, Um, do you say that often do you think that often uh, not, not this episode. <laughs> um, so, uh, so next week, ladies and gentlemen, in our penultimate episode of hashtag I love the eighties, we are going to be diving into the counterpoint of one Mr. Jason Voorhees, and we are going to be diving into the very first installment of Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Another one of your top ten from hashtag I love the eighties. So refresh yourself with it through the week, and we will see you next week. Nathan, thank you so much again for everything. Likewise, Reed. See you next week, guys. Bye. The 
Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com for show notes, or to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.